Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Well, good morning, everyone. I would ask you to take your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. It's actually not for the last time, because uh, this week we are finishing the formal study. Next week, I've got some principles that... uh, Hey, is there any way to kill those monitors behind me? Great. I don't know how you put up with my voice. I hear it back there. And, wow, that's an annoying voice. <laughs> um, but uh, this week, uh, we're going to finish the formal study. And then next week, I've got some principles I've been writing down about the book of Acts. I'm up to like 10. And I'm going to try to thin that out a little bit. But just some things I want to share, just some lessons from Acts, but, but right now we're going to finish it, and we are going to delve into two chapters. So we've got a lot of reading we're going to do today. Uh, we're not going to have a lot of slides up because it's all reading and text, and, and I don't want to make the slide guy have to keep up with me, so I'm trying to go easy on Zach's thumb. So uh, what we're going to do here today is just read through it, and we'll do it like I've did it, done it in the past, where I'm going to make a few comments along the way, but then at the end, I'll wrap up some of the uh, principles that I want you to uh, grab from this. But as I was thinking about this text, and and both last week and this week, one of the things that I've been thinking about is, um, you know, things I just want to say as I wrap up the role of pastor-teacher and move into role of missionary, not necessarily leaving the family of KBC, but extending the footprint of the ministry here. And, uh, and still being a part of these, but what would I want to say? And instead of having a, uh, a farewell address, I thought I would use last week's sermon, this week's sermon, and next week's sermon to kind of give you even a longer one and, uh, and to be able just to say a few things. And last week I talked about the fact that I really want to, uh, you know, have us be a church that lives boldly, that we'd be bold in our faith and acknowledging the world's changing around us and we're going to need boldness. And, uh, and we talked about, out of Acts, just how we made some observations about boldness. Well, this week, I want to talk about something that uh, is very strong to me and, and something that I want to share with you that I, that I hope becomes a reality and continues to be a reality for our church, is that we move from just living boldly to also living confidently. And when I talk about living confidently, I'm not talking about being a uh, confident person, like a type A personality. It's not what we're talking about. But somebody who lives confidently in, in the Scriptures, confidently in the promises of the Word of God, confidently in the truth that God has written and that we would find our comfort in that. It's hard to sometimes find comfort in that because the world throws us curveballs and twists and turns we would have never expected. And you, you just be in, in life long enough, you realize they come and things happen. And this week things have happened in many people's lives here. And, and twists and turns and stuff you would have never imagined when you were a child. Life when you were young, you know, was you saw adulthood as nothing but pure freedom and excitement. And, you know, you could go wherever you want, watch whatever you want, stay up as long as you want. And, uh, and that's, you know, to me at least when I was a young kid, that was adulthood. And, uh, and then you get into adulthood and you realize, oh, that's not even remotely close to what adulthood is. And that you look back and thinking, wow, actually you were freer when you were 15 than when you were 30. And, uh, and, and, and then suddenly when all those twists and turns come, you have these promises in the Bible and you have to say, 
how do I find my confidence in that? Because you can't find your confidence in this world because this world is shifting and changing. You can't find your confidence in people because people change and, and, and sin and make mistakes. And you can't even find your confidence in yourself because if you're honest, we're all very insecure people. And so you can't even trust in that. And so how do we find our confidence in the Word of God? I want us to see the confidence of Paul today. These last two chapters of Acts are very unique. And Paul is not only bold, like we looked last week, but he was also very confident in the Word of God. And that confidence was strong. And he stood boldly because he stood confidently that what God said is a sure thing and he was willing to bet his life on it. And we're going to see him bet his life on it. We're going to see him be so confident in the word of God that he's actually going to give a veteran sailor advice to break up his own ship. Which, like, if you know anything about sailing, don't break your ship. That's the dumbest thing to do. And yet Paul is so confident in the word of God that he's willing to stand on that confidence and say, God wants us to break this ship up. Break it up. We're going to see this today. It's it's amazing. So we're going to look. You've got an outline in your bulletin. It's somewhat of a loose outline. We're going to walk through the storm. We're going to then see Paul's final testimony in in Acts. And, And as we go through this, I want us to see the confidence. And as we go through it, uh, we're going to see that the book of Acts ends with a surprise ending. A little surprise at the end. And, uh, and in some ways, when people read through the book of Acts, they feel a little let down. And so if you feel that way when you get there, we'll try to get rid of that letdown for you as well. But well, let's begin. We're going to look at the storm that happens. Let's set the context. Paul has been arrested in Jerusalem. He was accused of violating the law, violating Uh, the temple, speaking against Israel, inciting a riot. He was tried in Jerusalem and found innocent, but then moved to another venue, Caesarea, and he's now, he was there, and he went through two more trials there. The Romans found him innocent. The Jews still want him executed. And so now they're going to send him off to Rome. Going to go from Rome. He's off on the ocean, off on the water to go to Rome for a final trial in front of the highest court in the Roman land. So now he's off there to see if, uh, if he's guilty of the death penalty. So this is what's happening. We're picking it up as he's making his way to go to Italy. Now let's look here. Chapter 27, verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan order, oh, I'm sorry, Augustan cohort, named Julius, and embarking in a ship of the Adramatium, which was about to sail to the port along the coast of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus. Notice that's an important statement there. A Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put into Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly, gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for, and putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we'd sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. I'm sure none of you know anywhere where they're at, right? You're not even tracking with this. That's okay. There the centurion found a ship of the Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off of Sindus. And the wind did not allow us to go further. 
We sailed under the lee of Crete, of Salomon, coasting along with difficulty. We came to a place called Fairhavens. Sounds like a little subdivision, doesn't it? Fairhavens, near which was the city of Lycia. Now, here's the point. Paul's in prison. He's going. He's on a ship. It's October. That's what you need to know. And October is the worst time to sail to Italy. The winds are bad. All kinds of winds are blowing. They're just basically hugging the coastline, which is the long way. They're just kind of running around these coastlines, and they're trying to, to, to get to a safe place. But what I want you to notice, so that's what all those cities were, were there to tell you. They're just, it's a tough journey for them. But what I want you to notice is something very interesting, that Aristarchus was allowed to be with Paul. That's the first thing I want you to notice. Second thing I want you to notice is that every time they landed in a port, there were Christians there, and the guard let Paul talk to Christians. You got to notice those two things. Very important. I want to tell you why Aristarchus is important. If you were reading through the book of Colossians, and you got to chapter 4, verse 10, you would hear Paul talk about Aristarchus, and he would say that Aristarchus was a fellow prisoner in bonds. Now, the reason why Paul called him this is a very simple reason. When you were in jail under the Roman system, they had no care for you. If friends and families didn't give you food, you starved to death. If you had an injury from the, from the shackles on your arms, if you didn't have friends come and tend to your wounds, it would turn infected and you would be in deep trouble. So you had to have people come to you. Now, Paul is a prisoner. He's in chains, actually, on these boats for a while. Who's going to care for him? So Paul says, hey, Aristarchus, would you care for me? And Aristarchus says, sure. But do you think if you're a Roman guard that you're just going to let this guy move in and out? Do you trust him? No. So you know what happens if a friend were to come to sail with you? They lock the friend up. And now Aristarchus is actually in jail with Paul. He's actually chained to Paul. The guy who's caring for Paul has become a prisoner. That is amazing. We want to store that in our brain. We also want to store in our brain that other people are ministering to Paul as well. Now here's a slight little tip, but we're going to come back to it in a minute. One of the keys to confidence for me is the love of the body of Christ. Oftentimes when the trial happens, the first place many of us want to go is to our own bedrooms and stay locked up there. Leave me alone. Even the greatest extrovert in the midst of a trial becomes a deep introvert. And yet, as this trial comes, he has the comfort of Aristarchus caring for him. He has the comfort of his friends. There are people ministering to him. It is amazing what's happening to Paul. Now, let's keep going. We'll come back to that later. Verse 9. Such much time had passed... And the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. That is just a simple way of saying they're past the Passover. They're way into, the, into the, the deep fall weather, which is very windy. Paul advised them, I'm in verse 10 here, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea. And from there, on chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, 
would spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew greatly, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. You can see what's happening there. Paul says, guys, this is really dumb. They say, we need to keep going. And so they go. And they're hugging the coastline, trying to get to a safe harbor. Okay, weather's getting worse. Let's keep going. Verse 14. But soon, a temptuous wind. It's very hard to find words in English sometimes. This is, temptuous means dangerous, kind of wickedly dangerous. Like really bad. Like if you're a sailor, your heart has just dropped when you saw this wind emerge. You know you're in deep trouble. I remember one time I was out fishing in Alaska, out on this little skiff, and, and, and we got our poles in the water, and I'm just trying to catch a halibut. And all of a sudden, the guy in the skiff looks up, and he sees the sky, and uh, he said something probably wouldn't be good to say on, here in public, and he just pull it up, and he pulled the anchor up, boom, and he just took off. These guys can read the, wind, the weather. And he's like, we got five minutes to get in or we might not make it back. It was just, boom, ran in. And there's, there's, there's fear, and I think about that. This temptuous wind comes up. They call it the Northeaster. It's bad. It's a bad storm. That's what's going on here, verse 15. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. It means that there was nothing we could do. We're just, just being tossed around by the wind. Running under the lee of a small island called Caudia, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began uh, the next day jettisoning the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor star appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was last abandoned. That we were utterly hopeless, is what he said. Complete despair took over the boat. This was horrible. They are literally tying the boat together, is what they're doing. They're running lines under the boat and wrapping the wood up. And they got these anchors in the ground, and they're just trying to hopefully just let it drag slowly along. But they know they're heading towards the shoreline. And you know what's under that water are rocks that are just going to smash this boat to pieces. And he's like, day and night, this storm was on us. We couldn't get where. And he says, all hope was lost. Could you imagine that? Nothing left. No one had hope. I think it's even implied that Paul, this is it. But God is going to speak to Paul. God's going to show up. Notice verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, little side note, there was food on the ship. We'll see that later. They're just seasick, they're not eating. I mean, these, you know, yeah, if you've ever been seasick, you're not longing for a hamburger and fries, that's for sure. Okay, so they've been without food for a long time. Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me. <laughs> oh, he didn't say it the way I would have said it. I just want you to know. There was, a, I think, a more biblical point there. 
Uh, but he said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you, granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on some island. Okay, God shows up and says, you're not going to die. No one on the ship's going to die, but here's the reality. You're going to have to smash the ship into an island. The boat will be destroyed. You will be saved. That's some, and then he stands up. And I don't think he's saying, I told you so. But I, but I do think he's using the I told you so for a strategic reason. It's like, you know, you didn't listen to me before, and here's where you're at now. So I'd like you to use a little bit of logic and listen to me now. Okay? We wouldn't have been in this mess if you had listened to me. So hopefully this gets your attention. The God whom I've served has sworn to protect us, but everything's going to crash. Now, I just want you to know, if you're out on a boat and there's a really bad storm, and, you, and you're told your boat is going to break up and you're going to have to run aground in the middle of a storm, but you'll live, that seems kind of crazy, right? I mean, that's probably the equal of, hey, we're in an airplane and it's going down fast and it's going to crash. Don't worry. I know we're heading towards the ground at 500 miles an hour. The whole plane's going to smash up. You'll be fine. Right? That's what he's saying. You'll lose it all. <laughs> it's like, that's faith, by the way. Paul says, I have faith in what I heard. That's the key to what he said. God said it. That settled it. I got faith. I got faith. Paul could believe the word of God or believe what he saw. And at this point, even the word of God seems a little strange. Okay? Because, you know, it might be easy for somebody to say to Paul, hey, there is another way for your God to solve this problem. Why doesn't he just stop the storm? Right? Yet that's not God's plan. God's plan is that this boat's going to slam up a bunch of rocks. They're going to be thrown from the boat. But no one's going to die. That's God's plan. God's plan is the storm. God's plan was not safe sailing. God's plan was dangerous sailing. So they're in the middle of God's will right now. Okay, verse 27. When the 14th night had come, I can't even imagine that, 14 days in a storm like this. You haven't eaten. It's been horrible. And if you've ever been on a boat, your, your body is sore because doing this is very hard. To do this 14 days. Try it this week, right? Just get home and just start doing this all day, all night. When you go to bed, have your kids just roll you back and forth, okay? Get up the next morning, do this, right? 14 days, and tell me how your hips feel, right? 14 days, this is super hard. This is, I mean, Luke's trying to say this is tough. When the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took soundings and 
and found 20 fathoms. Then a little farther on, they took soundings again and found 15 fathoms. A fathom is six feet. So ask Steve Chalgren the distance there. He'll tell you. And fearing that we had run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. That pretty much makes sense, right? They know they're heading towards the rocks. Okay? They know that's what's happening. That's scary. In a wooden boat being driven into the rocks by a heavy wind. Whew, scary. Verse 30. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. So the sailors are going, well, hey, we're coming up. We're at 14 fathoms, 15, you know, 13 fathoms. Let's just get in our little skiffs and take it to shore. So they're like, hey, we're going to lay some more anchors, you know. But really, they're lying. And, and Paul calls them on it. says, you guys are lying. I want you to know, the only way to be saved is to be in a shipwreck. Is that not crazy talk? Right? The only way to be saved is to let this ship slam into the rocks. If you get out of the boat, the storm is going to kill you. If you stay in the boat, your salvation is going to come through a shipwreck. And Paul is so confident that God's going to protect him. And the, and the, the captain of the boat believes it. He cuts away the, he drops the skiffs into the water so no one can escape. Why? Because God is protecting them. It's not the storm. The storm's irrelevant. The storm will kill them. It's a horrible storm. But God is the one who's protecting them, and God is protecting them in the boat, and God's plan is that this boat go through the shipwreck, and so you cannot step out of God's plan. There's no protection out of God's plan. If God's plan is you go through a shipwreck, then you're going to go through a shipwreck. This is what Paul is saying, and the captain believes it. It's pretty amazing. Verse 33. In this amazing story, wow. I heard some guys say, man, I'd love to be like the Apostle Paul. I think, wow, you got a lot of courage. <laughs> I just like talking about him. <laughs> Verse 33. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, have taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and gave thanks to God in the presence of all and broke it, right? It's a very communal moment here. God, thank you for this food. And he breaks the bread and he passes it out. Beautiful imagery. The presence of God in the midst of the storm. It's right there. Guys, you got to eat. I know you're sick, but you got to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food for themselves. There were 276 people on this ship. Pretty amazing. Pretty amazing. Verse 38. And when they had eaten enough... They lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Now they're getting rid of their food. They ate enough, now they've got to get rid of it. Now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. Hopefully we could maybe get it in there without a lot to happen here. So they cast off anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening their ropes that tied the rudder, then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach, but striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. And the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any 
swim away and escape, right? Soldiers, right? Who do we kill? But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered that those who could swim to jump aboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or pieces of the ship. And so it was that they were brought safely to land. Pretty amazing. Boat is moving in. Reef, right? It's a rock that you can't see. So the boat hits it like this. Boom! And it goes up like that. And then the, the water's still intense storm, so it's just beaten on the backside of the boat and breaking it to pieces. And the soldiers go, all right, we're going to lose people. If we lose people, I die, so I'm just, let's start killing them. And the captain says, no, no one's dying. Everybody's going to shore, so they get them all to shore. There's the storm. Two, two observations we need to make from that storm. Number one, there were people there that were caring for Paul. And number two, Paul had faith in the word of God. Complete and utter faith. That is where his dependence was grounded and fixed. Now we move on. Chapter 28. Chapter 28. The testimony. Paul gives testimony again. The tough days are not done. After we brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness. For they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had began to rain and was cold. Right? That's all you need after being thrown from a ship and swimming ashore. And you've been seasick and no doubt just, just shaken up for the past 15 days. You finally get to an island with some nice people and then it rains. It's just like, wow, this is just, you know, bad is just continuing. Verse 3, but God's plan was for the rain. Because God's plan was also that Paul was to get bit by a snake. Look, when Paul gathered a bundle of sticks and put them under a fire, a viper came out because of the heat and was fastened to his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said, hey, you're a god. Okay? It's <laughs> kind of funny. Now, I want you to think about something. Just a little side note here. Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, the non-Jews. He's been to Asia. He's been to Europe. What people group are left? The tribal people. So he's going to the tribal people now. Right? He's, this is his job, to bring the gospel to the nations. So now, in order to get there, God's going to slam them across the shore. And then tribal people are what? They're, they're animistic. They're, they believe that, that, that the spirits work within nature. They believe nature and the spiritual world are all interconnected. So what is the best way to share the gospel with a tribal person? Reach down into a pile of sticks, which is a bad thing to do, by the way, on any island. Never stick your hand under sticks. Right, because there's snakes in there and scorpions and stuff. But he does. He picks up the sticks, walking over to the fire. The snake goes, "Hey, I like this warmth," and latches onto his hand. And now he's got a venomous snake hanging from his hand. And the tribal people would instantly spiritually interpret that because they believed that who you are comes out in the way you die. If you're a murderer, then you will be killed and murdered by something in the spiritual world. 
Pretty obvious. So Viper attacks him. This guy must have murdered someone. He shakes it into the fire. And uh, he doesn't die. He doesn't even swell. And they then change their theology. Or they don't change their theology. They change their conclusion. You went from being a murderer to now being God. Now, here's a wonderful opportunity for Paul to say, I'm not a God. But I want to tell you about God, right? So the door is opening to the tribal people. Now, the key to tribal ministry, by the way, a little side note, is you got to get to the leader and his family because it's clan work. That's the key. So look at verse 7. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publis, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. So now Paul, because they think he's a god, is now with the leader, the tribal chief. It happened that the father of Publis lay sick with fever and dysentery, which is really bad. And Paul visited him and prayed, put his hands on him and healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly, and when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. Now, we're not getting the gospel presentation that he's doing there, but he's showing these very spiritual people that the God of this universe has authority over this, over this world, over sickness, over death, over everything. And now these tribal people are seeing the power of God himself. And you can imagine Paul for months just sharing Christ with these people. It's amazing. Verse 11, And after three months we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with twin gods as figureheads. So another ship comes down to pick him up, and it's got two gods on the front. I think Luke's just tossing it out as kind of funny because they always put, used to put gods on the front of their ships, and, but yet, you know, these gods are of no help. But anyways, but they're there. And he said, verse 12, putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made circuit and arrived at Rigam. And after one day, a south wind sprang up. And on the second day, we came to Putoli. There we found brothers, and we're invited to stay with them for seven days. What's happening? We're back to the encouragement again. He's around other Christians, and they're just feeding into them, building into them. And so we came to Rome, and the brothers, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius, far away, and three taverns. These are far distances to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God. And notice it says, took courage. Confidence comes not only from faith in the Word of God, but from the love of the brothers. You need people building into you. Paul is just soaking this up. It takes your toll to be in a shipwreck. It takes your toll to have to lead people through a shipwreck. It takes your toll to be bit by a snake. It takes your toll to share the gospel constantly, nonstop. It takes your toll to be at the center of this thing and he has got to be spiritually and emotionally and physically worn out. And then God puts him around believers are just building into him. And what's happening is courage is building. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? It's pretty amazing. Now, he's finally in Rome. Let's see what happens. We've been waiting for this trial, haven't we? Just want those Romans to say you're innocent. Well, be prepared to be let down. Okay, verse 16. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldiers who guarded him. And after three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, right? The, the, the leadership of the, of, of the Jewish people, the local Israelites. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, 
Though I had nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I asked to see you and speak with you, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing chains. So Paul is pretty brave. He gathers the Jewish people and says, those guys in Jerusalem and Asia, they want me dead. But I didn't do anything wrong. And the Romans haven't found anything wrong in me. Where do you guys stand on this issue? I mean, are you guys going to show up and start coming after me? I'm only here because I believe that Jesus is the promised one of the Old Testament. It's the only reason why I'm here. Notice what they say to him. Verse 21, and they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him with his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he had said, and others disbelieved. So Paul says this whole thing, he's in Rome, and they say, we don't know who you are. We never heard of you. We have no issue with you. But hey, if you're talking about this Jesus thing, we'd love to hear about it because we've only heard bad things. So they set up a day and a bunch of Jews show up and Paul goes through the Old Testament, Genesis to Malachi, showing them Jesus. Because this is what Paul does. He starts with Israel and he tells them about Jesus. Some believed and some said, you're a crazy man. Now, Notice how the book ends. We are at the end of the book. Some people feel a little let down at the end here. He says, verse 25, And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I will heal them. He's quoting out of Isaiah 6. Therefore, let it be known to you that, salvation, that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Where's the trial? <laughs> we have no idea what happened to Paul. Luke just drops us off with this interchange with Jews. That's it. And then we're told that he just lived there for two years, preaching the gospel. Why does Acts end this way? Right? Where's the moment where he's presumed innocent and he hugs his attorney and everybody goes out and celebrates, right? And the credits roll up. Where's that moment? It doesn't resolve. But it's not intended to resolve. Let me tell you what happened, and let me tell you why I think it ends this way. They're disagreeing. They're fighting about Jesus. And Paul, when he sees the Israelites in this horrible tension, fighting and arguing, Paul thinks of Isaiah chapter 6. In Isaiah, 
Isaiah is sent out on a mission. Isaiah 6, God sends Isaiah out on a mission. And the mission is a very strange mission. God tells Isaiah, I want you to go out and keep preaching about me. Because every time you talk about me, their hearts are going to get harder and harder and harder. And I want you to keep preaching it so their hearts will get harder because I'm judging them for rebelling against me. The Israelites refused to trust in the provision of God against the war with the Assyrians. They refused to do it. And instead, they turned to their own methods and their own ways. God says, if you don't turn to your ways, I'm going to walk away from you. And they said, we don't care. We're going to do it our way. And so the method was for Isaiah to keep telling people about God so they would just get harder and harder and harder. And Paul is saying, this makes total sense to me now. Your hearts are hard. But God has opened the hearts of the Gentiles. The nations are ready to hear. There's tribal people on Malta that are ready to hear. There's, there, there's Asian people in the Asian countries that are ready to hear. There's people in Europe that are ready to hear. The hearts are open. I'm not going to sit here with you guys anymore arguing about this and fighting in this internal tension. I'm going to the nations because God has opened their hearts. Luke ends this way, I believe, because Jesus hasn't returned. And the nations are still open. They're ready. God has opened their hearts, and we must go, is what he said. This is why Jesus said, go to the nations. Tell them. Make disciples. And Paul boldly proclaims, let it be known to you that the salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and that they will listen. There's a harvest field. And Acts 28 tells us it's not done. It's not done. We're not there to argue anymore with people whose hearts are hard. Our mission is to go and proclaim to people whose hearts are ready to receive. We heard testimony today of an entire community in the Czech Republic that is saying, come, bring your music, bring your message of Jesus. Don't leave us. Proclaim Jesus to us. And people being saved and hearts being changed and lives being transformed. This is still going on today. The book of Acts ends where it needs to end. That God has opened the ears of the Gentiles. It doesn't really matter what happened to Paul. Church history tells us, though, that Paul ministered in Rome until Nero took over. And then Nero had him beheaded a few years later. But the point isn't Paul. The point is the gospel. Okay, now, how do, how do we can talk about this in terms of living confidently before God? There are four words that I want to give you this morning that, 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 that really jumped out in this text for me. Some of them were directly in the text. Some of them I'm kind of bringing out of the text. But four words, and I think these four words become the four words that, 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 that really foster confidence for Paul to stand there and trust God. The first word that I want to give is the word faith. Paul said that he had faith in God's word. That's what he chose to anchor his life on. Now, God had spoken to him directly in the ship, but I don't know if it really would have mattered if he had read something or God had spoken, because it's not about the delivery system. It's about the faith. Do I believe it? I will tell you that my faith in God's word 
grows for me personally as I spend time in his word. And when I step away from his word and I begin to forget what's there and forget the promises, then I get a little shaky. But when God's word is there, it begins to transform me. And then suddenly I have confidence. I believe this will be true. And, and then the word of God begins to come out in me. And, and as, as things get crazy in my life, I, I, I run to a text instead of to a, a fear. That's something that's been really bold for me. to help me be confident. But there's a second word that I want to give here. This word is not in, this, in the story at all, but it's there. And it's the word hope. God not only made promises, but He actually told us that there will be outcomes. There actually will be outcomes. In Paul's case, the outcome is you're not going to die. In Paul's case, the outcome is the ship will be destroyed, but not a hair on your head will be, will be taken away. The outcome is that God has opened the ears of the Gentiles so we can go. There's outcomes out there. Hope is, is, is basically this. Hope is the confidence that God's outcomes are true for me. That's hope for me. It's true. If God said that what he started, he'll complete, I can have hope for my life and my kid's life and everyone else's life, right? <clears throat> if he started something, he will bring it to completion. Hope. I have hope that he won't leave me or forsake me. I have hope that his spirit is there empowering me to serve. I have hope that, that he's left me here for a reason and that, that I'll fulfill that reason. I'll be able to do that. I've got to see it at God's table. I have hope that there's a day waiting for me in heaven. There are these outcomes that God has put out there. And that hope becomes essential to confidence. Okay, so the first word is faith. The second word is hope. Could you guess what the third word is? Try it. Somebody, be bold. Love, exactly, love. So third word is love. Aristarchus was willing to become a prisoner to care for Paul. Paul is being ministered to by people. Paul is taking his courage by his love of the body. Like I said earlier, it's easy in the midst of the storm to take your toys and run. It's easy when conflict arises to say, I'm just going to go do it, and I'm going to sit in my basement, and I'm just going to be me and Jesus in my Bible. And that's it. People run away from the love, but that's running away from the very source of encouragement and courage that you need at the time of need. We're social beings, and God designed us to be built up by each other. He's designed us that way. He's designed us that way. So this love becomes essential to confidence. And there's a fourth word. You probably can't get it, though, because you only know faith, hope, and love, and there wasn't a fourth one attached, right? There's a fourth word. Let me give it to you. Here's the fourth word that's here. Mission. Mission. Paul lived to make the name of Christ known. He didn't live to start the Saul of Tarsus International Ministries. He didn't live to develop a headquarters somewhere. He didn't live to, to, you know, get his literature out there and do his thing. He lived to make the name of Christ known. If it means you're on a ship that's in the middle of a storm, then that's what he did. If it means you're on an island, you get bit by a snake, that's what you're going to do. If it means as you go into Rome and you know, argue with some people, that's what he's, he's going to make the name of Christ known. 
The problem that I have is that I entered this world not wanting to live to make the name of Christ known. I had fantasies about making the name of Steve known. Making my end goals the end goal of life. But as my brain shifts to start saying, wait a minute, the purpose of my existence is to make the name of Christ known, it changes how I'll view the storm. Because suddenly, when the viper's on your hand and you're going, really, God, a snake, right? A shipwreck, rain, cold, and now a snake? How much more, God, right? If you're not living to make the name of Christ known, then all you see is the snake. But when you live to make the name of Christ known, you go, wow, another opportunity to share with animist. Right? Here it is, guys. Look at the snake. Right? Shake it off. I'm alive. Right? I want to tell you why. Right? That's what it's about. When I don't live to make the name of Christ known, all I see is a shipwreck, a storm, angry people, horrible situations, cold, wet, that's it. When I transfer my brain and say, okay, God, how does this make your name known? I suddenly get purpose in the midst of what could appear to be a very purposeless moment of my life. Mission. Those are the things that give confidence. So that, I think, is critical. Faith, hope, love, mission. Powerful, powerful section. So let's pray that those things would be true in our life. And thanks for listening to a little long sermon here, but let's pray together. God, what a powerful section. It's hard for us to imagine that trial and crisis. And it's hard for us to imagine that you could use a, a storm, a shipwreck, and that in the midst of all of that, everything is, is moving according to plan. That there was safety in the shipwreck. That there was protection in the snake bite. There was purpose behind it all. That sailors saw your power and protection. That soldiers saw your power and protection. That tribal people saw your glorious uh, power over all of creation. That Jews heard your message one more time. And that we heard the message that you have opened the ears of the Gentiles. It's so powerful, God. May we leave here confident. Faith in your word in God. Hope in your outcomes. Love for each other. And the mission to make your name known in the midst of whatever storms come this week. Pray this in Christ's name. Thank you for joining us at Kishwaukee Bible Church. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H, bible.org.